probably a bit strange, like I said. Um, tonight I titled this message, um, Cliff Notes to the Book of Nahum, um, Part 1. Um, and I look at this verses 9 to 15, there's actually four address, or four speech, actually, in this passage here. Um, and it switches between... Um, it switches between those that he's addressing with Assyria or Nineveh and then also to Judah. I actually think there's something going on here that we perhaps might not easily see clearly. And I think the main passage here is, I think it's summarizing. Um, what we see here is, um, just to back up, last week we saw uh, that God is going to have universal judgment. For the last two weeks previously, we saw God's going to have universal judgment. Um, God will judge the whole world for their sins because why? God's attribute it was the first week. Then the second week, we saw that God has the power to judge because His power is over nature, um, is strong, and also when His coming is not just only strong over nature, but it's also even uh, creatures are also um, responding to the power of God with the upcoming day of the Lord. So now after this global perspective, because last week we didn't see any indication um, in verses 2 to 8 of any historical mention. And I think it's all future of coming of the Lord. Now it's going to be looking at this specifically that even before the day of the Lord, as a little window of God's judgment in the future, we see that God's judgment of Nineveh is anticipating that. Okay, so there's now going to be from verses 9 onwards, chapter 1, verses 9 onwards, you're going to see um, as each section, as we look at, it's going to have more details of how God's going to judge Nineveh. And the details, like what we kind of went over in the introduction to Nahum, it's going to be very so specific that it's astounding, the detailed fulfillment of this Messianic prophecy. And I titled today, like I said, um, verses 9 to 15, is the Cliff Notes. Um, to the book of Nahum. What do I mean by that? It's a summary form. Um, I don't know if I'm maybe getting older than everyone else. I don't know. Did you guys, you guys all know what I mean by cliff notes? Maybe in school, if you guys remember, there was back in the day where people could have like um, these classics, uh, literature, um, whether English lit or whatever classical literature. There's these little booklets that summarize the literature, sometimes chapter breakdown, things like that. Um, maybe a more cool hip analogy is this is the... Um, the opening paragraph of Wikipedia, summary of the book of Nahum, okay? Um, and I think this is important as we look at this because as it builds on this, we're going to see more and more details. And I hope as we go over the details, Nahum to me is one of those things that give, actually it gives me a lot of boost and confidence in my faith because I see the prophecies being fulfilled so accurately is one of the reasons why I believe in God's word. Um, if you ask me, the number one reason why I believe in God, I actually think is is because um, the prophecies in Scripture is just so amazing. And number two, actually, the other number two reason why I, if I had to group them together, the second reason why I believe is the Bible's description of sin is just so dark, it's, but it's also so compelling compared to any other worldview. That's one of the other reasons why I believe in Christianity um, in terms of why I, what I think are the most powerful evidence. Um, I do believe, by the way, the Bible is self-evidencing and all that, but I think the self-evidencing of Scripture is also seen by its prophecies, prediction of it being fulfilled. So in light of this today, I look at this, and I actually think there's actually four address. There's actually four different speeches, and it, inter it switches between addressing to Assyrians and then to Judah, or people in Judah, and then later on back to the Assyrian and then back to Judah again. Okay, so um, I actually see, if you're taking notes, I actually see there's four address here, okay? There's four address. We're going to only today look at only two of these address. And I'm going to do this out of order. Um, there's a reason why I'm focusing. I want to focus on the bad news first and good news next week, okay? So all the address towards Judah is going to be more or less good news, okay? So we're going to focus on um, everything addressed towards Judah next week. Everything is going to be what? Next week, okay? Um, and everything for Assyrian, addressing towards Assyrian, I'm going to deal with it this week, okay? I'm going to look at it this week. But in looking at this, um, this is the order that I see. Um, is The first address is in verses 9, to, first address to Assyria is in verses 9 to 10, okay? So this outline is going to be for this week and next week, okay? But the first one is first address to Assyria is in verses 9 to 10. Then after this is in verses 11 to 13 is I see the first address to Judah, First address to Judah in verses 11 to 13, okay? First address to Judah is in verses 11 to 13. Then after this, it's gonna, I see is the second address to Syria. Second address to Syria is in verses 14. Um, second address to Syria is in verses 14. And um, 
then you see the second address to Assyria is in verses 15, okay? Second address to Assyria is in verses... Oh, what am I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, correction. Second address to Judah. I'm sorry. The last part is second address to Judah. Um, it's going to be in verses 15. Okay, let me... I'm sorry, I wrote the wrong grammar. Second address to Judah is in verses 15. Let me restate that again so it's not confusing. Um, I see there's four speeches, okay? The first one is going to be switched from Assyria to Judah, okay? Assyria to Judah, okay? A-J, 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 okay? The first address to Assyria is verses 9 to 10. Um, first address to Judah is in verses 11 to 13. And then it gets shorter, in the third part is second address to Syria, only in verse 14. And then second address to Judah is in verse 15. And I actually think this is uh, the book of Nahum in a nutshell, okay, so to speak. Um, the book of Nahum in a nutshell. But we're going to look at part one, and then next week we'll look at part two. So in light of this order, I'm going to be focused today more on the bad news, okay, more on the bad news. And I'm going to only look at today the address towards Assyria. So in light of this four-part structure... I'm going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 with the first address, and then the second address to Assyria in verses 14, okay? So just in case you think, Jimmy, you're hopping around for no reason, no, I'm beginning with the bad news first, okay? Um, everything we've addressed towards Assyria um, first. So we're going to see the first address. So really tonight's message is going to be two points, okay? So this is going to be the four points, but then next week we're going to be looking at the first address to Judah, which is verse 11 to 13, and then the second address to Judah in verses 15. But for tonight, we're looking only to, towards this address towards Assyria. Okay, so we're going to be looking at first address in verses 9 to 10, and then the second address to Assyria in verses 14. Okay, so let's look at this. Um, for context here, um, I think the whole uh, verses 1 of uh, the whole section in verses 9 to 14 is telling us that God's judgment is going to fall upon Assyria. Okay, and and then also as well Judah's deliverance. Because Assyria will be judged, the other side of the coin is Judah will be delivered from their enemies and a nation that's harassing them, okay? So there's going to be this dual part, judgment and deliverance, okay? Or destruction and deliverance, if you want to have it this way. So tonight, we're going to focus on the gloom and doom part, the destruction part. And next week, we're going to have focus on Judah's message of comfort. Why all of this is actually comfort for fitting the name for the book of Nahum is what Nahum means comfort that is uh, Judah will be comforted because Nineveh and Assyria will be no more. Okay. Um, and you might wonder if you look at this passage, you might wonder, Jimmy, I don't see why you break it down this way because it's kind of hard, at least for me when I first read it. Um, was wondering, wait, wh who is this talking to? Sometimes it seems this optimistic hope, and it's, you know, saying, hey, you will be all this, um, all these good things will happen to you. Then all of a sudden, wait, wait, you're also saying all these bad things will happen. Which ones are the you? And part of that problem is because in our English, you is not clear. When I say, hey, you, um, you is just what? It could be anyone, right? When usually in a room, when someone say, hey, you, all heads could turn around. But in different languages, there's different kinds of you. It's more clear about its gender and also its number. Does that make sense? Um, the English word, unfortunately, is just not clear. Am I talking to a whole bunch of people, you, or am I talking to one singular in terms of number? And also in other languages with Greek and Hebrew, there's also you in terms of you in terms of male and female. Does that make sense? And the way we distinguish this passage of who's is addressing is by ten paying attention to the you. Um, Maybe an example real quick is um, uh, for some of you guys uh, are of Chinese ethnic background, enough you know the language. You guys know that you address you individual and you in plural. Di sounds different, right? Um, in Mandarin, what do you say to someone when you're just only saying you, singular? What do you say? Hui, help me with the Chinese. What do people say when they address one singular person in you, the word? Ni, okay. And then plural is what do you say, Hui? Ni Yeah, ni men. Men is the last word is emphasizing plural, okay? So if I were to have a New American Southern Bible instead of New American Standard Bible, I'll have you and you all, okay? For a shout out to all the Southerners here, Kike and all that, okay? Um, you all, right? This is the way you would say it. 
Um, so in the Hebrew, is the same thing also as well. But the Hebrew gets even more specific with male and female, okay? And when you look at this passage, and this is where sometimes I want to give this an example. Why, and I don't want to be where our Bible study is, I want to make everyone eggheads only because we have to live out God's word. But I also want to encourage you guys to sometimes paying attention to the Hebrew or the original language is very helpful in understanding what's going on. Okay, so one of the reasons, if you look at first address to Assyria, uh, what we see here is I actually think verses 9 and 10 when it says you, notice it says you when it says whenever you, whatever you devise against the Lord. Okay, and then also in verses 10, it gives all these things. This you here is actually male plural. Okay, I think he's addressing a bunch of men, uh, a bunch of men. Okay, a country almost as well. Okay, then if you look at verses 11, okay. Verses 11, there's actually a transition. Notice in verses 11, it says, From you has gone out one who plotted evil against the Lord. Suddenly, this you here is feminine singular. Okay? So this is now addressing someone else that's different. It's feminine singular. Um, if I were to have a new American Southern Bible, the first part in verses 9 will be a you all. Okay? You all men. Okay? But here in verses 11, it switches. Um, 11... And also in verses uh, 13, this section in 11 to 13, the you here is singular and it's feminine, okay? And then, so I think this is actually addressing Judah. I'll talk about the reasons why next week more. Uh, and then in verses 14, it's interesting. Do you guys see in verse 14, it is now another you. It says, the Lord has issued a command concerning you. Now it's no longer feminine singular, it's masculine singular, okay? Masculine singular, I think this is very likely addressing the king of Nineveh, okay? Uh, and then if you look in verses 15, where it says, um, Behold on this mountain the feet of him who bring good news. It goes on, and, and here I think this is when it says celebrate your feast. It's now a switch of another Hebrew pronoun. It's another feminine singular, okay? So this is how I break it down to four speeches because it's addressing four different groups. The first is group of male, plural. The second is feminine, singular. And then now it's masculine, singular as a third address. And then the fourth one is feminine, singular. Okay. Um, I'm going to save all the feminine, singular for next week because I think that's actually Judah. He's encouraging this. But now we're going to focus only those on Assyria. Okay. So in looking at this, the first part, the first address in verses 9 to 10, I'm going to read this again in verse 9 to 10. Um, I think this is the first address to Assyria. Okay. It says, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. The stress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. They are consumed <coughs> like stubble, completely dried up. Okay, so in looking at verses 9 to 10 in the first address, this here is we ask a question again, like I said earlier, verse 9 to 10. This is addressing masculine plural you. This is a group of people, which I think very likely is talking about Assyria as a nation. Okay, The question is, you might say, Jimmy, how do you know this is addressing towards Nineveh or, or Assyrians? Um, number one, I think it's a masculine plural. is referring to a nation. Okay, as Another reason why is remember how um, we just saw in Nahum 1.1. Do you remember Nahum 1.1? It says the oracle of Nineveh. It's God's judgment against Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of, of what? Assyrians. So I think if you know this oracle right away in verse 1, it's definitely going to be addressing Nineveh. Then you would be not surprised with the masculine plural that this would be talking about Assyrians. Um, but the other reason I would also say this is because in verses 9 and 10, what happened to these masculine plural? You. These individuals that God is addressing directly and saying you um, these are going to be those that is going to face what? Destruction. Okay. So that fits with the rest of the book. The theme that Assyria will be judged by God. So this masculine plural, I think, is referring to Assyria. So those are the reasons why the masculine plural, but it's not standalone, divorced from that um, in the vacuum. Is Secondly, remember Nahum 1.1 says God's going to judge. And if this section in verses 9 and 10 is saying, hey, you all masculine plural is going to be judged I think this would fit in the theme that this is talking about Assyria so let's look at what's going on here and as what Eric made an observation earlier the focus here is on Assyria's uh, opposition to God 
And it's not just only opposition that just happened um, on the go or on the fly. But it's, this is an opposition where it's thought out. Where there's a conspiracy, in a sense, against God. Okay, My New American Standard Bible says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, as the beginning of verse 9. What do some of your other versions say besides devise against the Lord? Some of your versions will say conspire. Any other versions say something else here? Any other versions say? Go ahead, Chris. Plotting. Okay, good. Okay, that's another good word. So this Hebrew term is emphasizing there's thought, there's plan, there's planning. It, in other words, it's premeditated sin. It's not, oh, you're sinning on the fly, you just happen to get upset, and you got triggered. No, this is actually the sin with Nineveh. Why God's going to announce their judgment is, don't forget, is they're dev- plotting and devising... Uh, making devices and plans against the Lord, okay? Um, which, like I said earlier, other version uses the word plot or conspire, okay? So what is the the problem here is a serious plotting against the Lord. Now, I actually think the use of this word of plot or device or or some of the version use devise or, or conspire, what's the significance of this is, I think when it says it this way, um, Assyria has a lot of sin, but Assyria also has things that they really, really do not like. If you want to see Assyria get very, very violent, you know what often, you know, just because they conquer someone, they're not always violent. They destroy everything. You guys realize that? Because when you invade a country, you usually don't want to destroy everything because the purpose of you invading is to get what? Spoils, right? And so that they would be able to pay tax for you. They would often be most violent against those who what? plot against him, right? There's the guys that they, so they're most violent when let's just say they conquered a group of people and a group of people say, oh, we surrender. You killed a lot of us and there's, okay, we're going to be merciful towards you, but you're going to pay heavy taxes. And by the way, it's for their benefits, right? And let's just say they move their armies away and after the move, armies moved away, you know what would happen is, let's just say, one of that, that country that you just conquered said, you know what, while you're gone, we're going to set up opposition. We're not going to pay any taxes to you and everything else, and we're going to raise an army against you. The second time the Assyrian army comes, do you guys think they're going to be soft like the first time? Well, they're not even soft the first time. They're, they're going to be softer, or do you think they're going to be more harsh? What do you guys think? More harsh. In fact, in their writing, in their drawings, most of those things when they're harsh to other countries is those kingdoms and cities that were conquered before and they betrayed they conspired against who they plot against assyria they plot against nineveh so by the time the second king comes around this time they're no longer playing game they're going to be crushing and destroying everything as example to others to say hey you do not want to conspire or plot or devise against us so with this background when god says to them saying hey whatever you devise against the lord He's God is saying, hey, you're doing a sin that he's explaining them in terms that they would understand that God is the big boss, so to speak. And they're the client or the vassal, you know, uh, you know, God is the vassal, the big landlord. And they're the ones that are the client that's supposed to be paying these heavy dues to, to God, to to honor, respect him as king and as God. OK, and now they're rebellion. And he's saying, you're seeing these things in this way. And God's just saying, I'm going to adapt the same template to say you're committing the same kind of heinous sin against who? Against God. It grows because you guys listen and obey, sit down and listen to mama because <coughs> it's still God's word being studied. OK, <coughs> and so you see here. They're plotting against this, okay? And it's ironic because God is charging them with the same kind of sins that they cannot tolerate with others, okay? Let me just show you an example of this um, in the Bible. Turn with me real quick to 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 3 to 8. I just want to show you, um, within the Bible, it records this. Outside the Bible, in the Syrian annals and everything else, they record how they treat those that conspire against them. But we see this... Um, we see a window of this, even within Scripture. So if you guys could turn with me to 2 Kings um, 17, verses 3 to 8. Um, 17, verses 3 to 8. Could I have in this the help of um, Leanne? Would you be able to read verses 3 to 4? And then um, uh, then if I could have Mandy, would you be able to read verses 5 to 6? And then verses 7 to 8 will be uh, Abigail, okay? Abigail, okay? Let's turn real quick to 2 Kings, chapter 17. Again, Leanne will read verses 3 to 4. 
Um, Mandy Reed versus five and six. Um, and then uh, Abigail Reed versus seven and eight. Okay, Abigail, if you could come up close. Um, give me a minute real quick, uh, Leanne, before you start. Let me get there first. I don't want to uh, not be able to read. Okay, Second Kings again, 17 verses 3 to 8. Because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. Okay, thank you so much, my lady. Thank you, guys, uh, sisters, ladies, for reading that. So reading this passage, you see what's going on here is, uh, so they were now, um, they were under the jurisdiction where they are required to pay tribute to Assyria, okay? Um, and notice in verses 3, under the king of Ho Hoshseah, okay? He is what? He's defying and not giving any tribute. So guess what happened? The king of Assyria in verses 5, they're invading and they're punishing. And it's a severe punishment. But of course, in verses 7 and 8, what Abigail read is there's a deeper problem to all this. The problem is not geopolitical politics. The issue is what? God's people in Judah did not put God first. They're following after other gods. The problem is really deep root. The deep root is spiritual. And that's the lack of following after God is why they have all these problems also as well. Okay, So... Here we see um, what's going on here is it's ironic now that Assyria, who could not tolerate this, now God's using the same terminology, same framework for the Syrians to understand and saying, hey, you too are doing the same thing, except you're doing it against the real and living God. You're not giving him its proper due and you're plotting against God. You're thinking you're greater than God. Okay, So in light of this, we see that God in the first address, he announces uh, two judgments. Two judgment, and he's going to give two analogies in verses 9 and 10, okay? The first judgment he gives in verses 9, second half says, He will make a complete end of it, okay? Um, which then here is he's saying, I think what he's trying to say is, um, is that though they could plot, they could make plans, guess what? God will crush it, okay? God will crush it. Let me ask you guys this question. When you read this phrase, he will make a complete end of it. Does that remind you of any part of Nineveh we've seen already before? From last week? If you actually look at verses 8. Look with me what we looked at Nahum chapter 1 verses 8. Um, I'm going to read this real quick. It says, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. Okay. In the Hebrew where it says the end of its sight, literally he will make a complete end of it. It's actually the same Hebrew phrase. Exactly as that in verses 9. So God's judgment is say, hey, you're conspiring against God, but guess what? God will make a complete end of it. Using the same, um, in, in the Hebrew, in verses 8 and verses 9, it looks exactly the same. Using the same verb, even the same word order, okay? And it's actually not the traditional word order. So usually, you know how in English we speak um, subject, verb, object, I hit the ball, right? In Hebrew, it's actually verb, subject, object, right? Hit. I, the ball. That's literally how their construct or their syntax looks like. So in Hebrew, it actually, in, in verses 8 and in verses 9, they have the same structure in the sense of the object first, okay? Where it's it and then um, hit and then I, okay? Or, 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 or uh, I will make a complete end of it, okay? Um, or he will make a complete end of it, okay? 
And so here we see, it's the same thing. And you know what's the significance of this? Or the significance of verse 8 and 9 is, remember verse 8, God says he's going to do a global judgment of all. When he comes down, it's going to be really crazy. Rivers will dry up and everything else. The day of the Lord, listen, Christ's second coming, we, there will be great judgment. There will be great judgment. The world will be terrified, okay? And he's saying, using the same thing, what's the significance of using the same phrase in Hebrew? Um, by the way, just to let you guys know, um, Nahum has been identified by various commentators as one of the smallest book with, the, with probably the most richest amount of literary devices uh, in any book in, in Hebrew literature, right? And you see echoing. Do you get what I'm saying? Echoing, right? You ever see battle rappers where they pick, use the same lines from another person's battle that they're a rival of, and they're using a turn and around and, and again in the next rap? That's the same thing that God's doing here, right? Earlier, picking up things that was earlier, picking things up that was in the Old Testament of salvation, but now using the same phraseology, flipping on a script to say God will judge the world, okay? Same thing. There's a lot of these literary devices that is so rich in, in the literature of this book. And in verses 9, when it sees the connection here, is almost, I think God is saying, you know, there will be a future judgment. It's going to be global. But we will see a little window of what that great judgment will be like in the future with the example of Nineveh. By the way, in this time period, when, Nineveh, when Nahum was written, um, it would have almost seemed impossible for what? Nineveh to be collapsing, okay? Because they would have been ruling for decades. They would have the most been powerful country. Okay, in this time period. And God was merciful. God actually allowed Nineveh to be strong with a world empire for about a period of about 140 years. Okay, about 140 years. And I think there's an application here. I'm going to jump to the application here. It was this. We look at America and we think America is so strong. Look at the Navy, right? I mean, there's no country that has the amount of naval supercarriers like we do. But America, by the way, is long, shorter history than where? Uh, the Syrians. Nineveh, you guys realize, is even mentioned all the way in the book of Genesis. So we should not be so prideful to think of our country, which has a shorter history than a lot of countries. And our time is so short, even as the power of the post-World War II era, post-World War I era, I actually think is the rise of America as a global power, whether financially or military or other soft powers, okay? Um, but here we see, it should be a reminder that, hey, just because... You cannot think just by power alone, okay? And we do live in the U.S., and this is a um, really, in some way, a rebuke also as well to realize, hey, we need to be right with God um, individually, but even as a country also as well. You know, God does judge corporately nations also as well. So we see here uh, judgment number one, right? God makes it very clear that any plans of Nineveh will be frustrated and will put in. But there's also a second judgment in verses 9. The very last part says, distress will not rise up twice. Um, the word distress will not rise up twice. The word distress, in your other version, does your any of your other versions say anything else? My preference is actually not to translate that as distress. I actually translate that as adversary or the word for enemy. I think that better fits the context. Um, anyone ha version says anything else instead of saying distress or adversary? Trouble. trouble, okay, trouble, okay. So my translation, the way I would say this is when it says distress will not rise up twice. Um, I actually think fitting the context where it's plotting against God. I take this distress is not a noun in abstract form of troubles or distress. I actually think this is referring to Nineveh or to the nation, the masculine pro. They're now described as an adversary, as an enemy of God. They will not even rise up twice. Now, in different history, sometimes different countries could have empires more than once, true or not. For instance, you could see at different times in Chinese history, in different empires, sometimes some empires were very weak or certain dynasty was weak. They didn't project in terms of powers towards their neighbors. And there's certain dynasty that was very strong, invading all over, right? Think, for instance, during the Mongolian, when the Mongolian took over this dynasty, they were expanding everywhere, right? Under the Khans, all those Various cons, right? Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, and all those other cons, okay? Um, but then other times they were weak. And they, so there'll be rise and fall of empires, okay? Same thing even as well of others. But you know what's interesting? This prophecy is saying Assyria would only be strong once. There'll never be rise as an empire again. And in looking at this history from 2,700 years, it turned out to be pretty true. Assyrians still exist, but they'll never be able to have the power to be their own empires 
ever again as a people. Okay, so I think when it says here, this is a prophecy to say they'll never be strong ever again to be an enemy of God the same way that they were before. Okay, so I take this God's judgment is to say they will never be rise as an empire to be an enemy of God in that way a second time. Okay, so that's the second judgment. But to illustrate this, this is a prophetic book, which in some ways is poetic in describing God's judgment. There's now two analogies of God's judgment. There's two analogy of God's judgment. Look with me in verses 10a, okay? So the analogy of God's judgment is in verses 10, two of them. The first half is in is one, and the second half of verse 10 is a second, okay? The second line is a second. The first one says this, Like tangled thorns, thorns and like those who are drunken with their wine, they are consumed, okay? Now, commentaries would point this out to say there's a lot of things like what is going on here? Okay, what's going on here? And it's actually very hard. Um, um, I'll be honest. I got kind of got stuck trying to say, hey, figuring out what is going on here in, in this, okay? But there's something in the Hebrew where there's some kind of play on words where the subject and the modifier begins with the same letter, okay, S, and the same root, okay, um, with this, with the word drunk or drunkard. So in verses 9 where it says, like tangled um, uh, thorns, they're like drunkards with a drink. So there's something that, that they're looking the same. And it's same to say that, you know, a drunkard's kind of become like the drink they're drinking. Like Tango Torns, they're going to, you know, like it's, it's all tied up. So whatever, remember the point of all this, there might be an idiom that we might not fully appreciate in the English understanding. But it's definitely something in the Hebrew. Um, but I think the analogy is, remember the context is to say, God's judgment will be complete. They will be utterly consumed. Okay. Um, maybe I think of a human analogy is if you guys meet those that drink so much, they become what? They they become totally consumed and, and they're not able to function. They're passed out. I think that's just what's trying to convey what's going on here. Okay. Total um, knocking them out, so to speak. Okay. The second analogy of God's judgment is in verses 10, second half, where it says, like stubble completely dried up. Okay. Um, like stubble completely dried up. Um, is just saying, okay, God's, and remember earlier, God uses analogy too. When God comes, everything's going to be dried up. All the rivers will be dried up. And he's saying, okay, it's almost like in a microscopic way, God's judgment of Nineveh is the same way. There's a drying up also as well, okay? By the way, there's drying up and there's also a lot of flooding as God's description, imagery of God's judgment of Nineveh. Which, by the way, kind of reminds us of Jonah, right? Remember how Jonah, God teaches his point with what drying up desert, right? Dry wind and also big rain, right? It's like like flooding the ship and everything else. And it's just all wild. And that one was actually to do all that wonder is God's doing that for salvation. But now is what? It's the opposite. It's for judgment, right? Judgment where there's drying up. So I think Nahum and Jonah, it should be taken together. And I think we appreciate that more, that God is powerful in these ways to save and to judge. Um, The saving part we're going to focus on next week with um, our second point of what the cliff notes um, of Nahum part two, okay? So in all of this, I think as uh, as an application for point number one, uh, what point number one is to say, I think first thing is, do you believe that God could judge strong nations. Um, do you believe that? And number two, do you believe that God could actually judge America too? Um, I know sometimes people make a lot about Christian nationalism. I personally, in my personal opinion, I think a lot of it we have to be very careful because sometimes the media makes a lot to demonize Christianity and say, oh, look at all this, they're taking over. I think the percentage of people that's actually Christian nationalist, quote unquote, like we want to take over the country and kill people that are not Christian. I actually think it's a very small minority. I think there's probably the wackos in the internet. There's not a lot of preachers, speakers that say those things. I mean, even look at when American, finally um, as a nation, um, the Supreme Court allows gay marriage. How many Christian lawmakers actually say, hey, I'm going to resist this and give up our job? You know, there's, you guys realize there's hundreds of congressmen. Apparently, most congressmen in the in Congress, apparently, um, there's more Christians, professing Christians than even like 20 years ago, which blows my mind. Everyone's a Christian, Democrat, whatever else, right? Um, there's a lot of quote-unquote Christians um, among the Senate, uh, uh, you know, 100 plus 438 or so, right? 500 something. And yet there's a lot more. And you know, there's thousands of people that profess to be Christian. You know how many people resisted 
gay marriage to say I would even have my job be fired to not issue um, gay marriage certificate. There's only one. Do you guys remember her? She was on that news. She was that one small county clerk in, in Kentucky. I just bring this up to say people could blow up the Christian nationalism a lot. Sure, we don't want to be like kill people to take over. But I want to make this point too is to say this passage is to indicate we shouldn't be worshiping the state, okay? Actually, the, I personally think the one that are most strongly nationalistic are usually statists, are usually those that are left that says the state has all these powers to rule over things, okay? Uh, I think that's a fair a biblical assessment. So with those, I would even say too, even to those that, in my opinion, the left is actually the most violent in history in the U.S. presidency, okay? They, they start more wars since Woodrow Wilson than anybody else, okay? You name me most wars. Most wars until very recently were more by people that were progressive, that were very secular, that actually in some sense thinks the state is, if there's no above us, there's no sky, it's all sky, there's no God, then the state becomes the biggest powerful thing, is assumed to play the role of the functional God. So in this passage here, we see, I think this is an indictment, if this is more appropriately to apply to even for those who are secular, who thinks that by the might of our country, I mean, even right now, you guys realize in some sense, we're almost in a verge of World War Three. I don't think very likely it will happen, but the language is pretty crazy. If you guys think about it, that the United States is talking about Biden after two failed war or failed wars, is talking about using 50,000 troops Right to to so that the United States will not so Russia would not invade Ukraine. Some of you guys know I served in Ukraine. I love the Ukrainians. Um, I think when I served in the Marines in Iraq, Ukrainians have died alongside Marines, and Ukrainians have died um, even when I was training in Ukraine. Um, I spent some times with the Ukraine. I love them as a people, but I also don't think in light of this we could have all the powers. So this should be a warning for us to say we need to put God first and not worship power, okay, as the application. And say just because we're strong, therefore we always get our way, okay? Let's go to the third point, okay? Third point is the second address to Syria, okay? So again, let me say this real clearly. I'm not making this political just to be political. I hope you guys know enough that I don't go on hobby horses, but I think this is the right application, right, to address um, a, a godly society that says, hey, they're more powerful than God, who cares about Christian or anything with the Bible. I think this would address appropriately the more secular um, with this is application. So let's look at point number two is actually in verses 14, the second address of Assyria. And this is what it says. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetrated. I will eliminate the carved image and the cast metal image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Okay. Um, here, I think this is addressing Assyria, but specifically, I think it's now addressing this Syrian king. Okay. The reason why I say this is because if you look here, the masculine singular is what? the mas It's a masculine singular. So it's not masculine plural, where I think earlier is the nation. But why is there a move from the, the plural to the singular? Is I don't think this is addressing a, the city of Nineveh. Nineveh as a city, um, usually in Hebrew, addressing a city, it's often feminine. Okay, you, there's a feminine singular. And I think um, this masculine singular is actually referring to the king. It's focusing on the nations at first, but now God is almost like a sniper zooming in specifically to the one most responsible for Nineveh going against God, which would be the king himself. Okay, so that's why I take the masculine singular is referring to the king, uh, the masculine singular you, okay? Um, when it says the Lord issue a command concerning you, he's addressing the king directly. <coughs> <coughs> Part of the reason why I think this is addressing the king is because you see there's various punishment, and this punishment seem to address more appropriately towards those that are king versus those that are not. Let's look at, there's three punishment that's mentioned. How many punishment? Three. There's three. And one reason why God is punishing this individual, masculine individual, right? Um, look at the first one. I think the first one indicates this very likely is a king. Because the first punishment, it says, your name will no longer be perpetrated, right? Kings are about bragging about their what? Name. Often, okay? It's about perpetuating that. Also, their line. Their dynasty, right? Their dynasty, their name uh, of their house, so to speak, okay? Um, I mean, even English kings, even modern kings today, right? The House of Stuarts is it? the curtain dynasty in, in the English reign, right? Uh, or not the House of Stuarts. Did I say Stuarts? Okay, I'm thinking of a Reformation. I think it's the House of Windsors, um, if I'm correct. Oh, man, don't quote me on this, okay? 
Sorry, I was thinking Reformation, Pilgrims, Puritans, fighting and all that stuff. But that's another Oliver Cromwell. That's another history, another lesson. If we ever want, on Tuesday, we could do a church history too. But that's another sermon another time. But for now, we'll look at this. Amen. Oh, wow, I'm glad to see thumbs up. Praise God. But looking at this, the punishment is God is saying, hey, he's going to cut the royal dynasty of the Syrians. Where it says, your name will no long be no will no longer be perpetrated. Let's see the second punishment mentioned also in verse fourteen. It says, "I will eliminate the carved image and the cast metal image from the house of your gods." All throughout the various writings of the kings of the Assyrians, their historical record, they would often say they do things by the power of the Assyrian gods. Okay, if you want a really good Christian survey of this, um, I'm glad Mandy recommended me this book. Um, that was I forgot the name of it. Was it Ancient Near East Themes in um, Biblical Theology? I really recommend I mean, that guy quoted a pretty good amount of record. Man, he, um, you know, uh, recommends that book. Man, that was probably one of my best books on Biblical Theology I read last year. And I read a few last year. So I'm thankful for Mandy's input with that. Okay? Um, so in light of this, that's um, God is saying he's going to cut out the source of their power. What they think is a source of their power for them. He's going to eliminate their art, uh, carved image. Now, when we go through the rest of Nahum, he's going to even be more specific later on to say even the temples will be destroyed. But here at least, this is the summary version, right? If this is like an image on, a, on your phone, you just see the general thing. And then later on, Exodus, uh, correction, Nahum 2 and 3, he's going to zoom in and see more details, right? More details of what it is God's doing here. And the third punishment, it says, I will prepare your grave. Ouch, man. He's saying, I'm going to bury you, right? Um, that vernacular, that idiom, I think, translates in every culture. God's saying, I'm going to eliminate, I'm going to kill you, okay? Um, but what I want to focus on more is actually the reason. Why is God announcing these three punishments? Why is, you know, he's going to cut the royal dynasty. He's going to destroy the king's idols. And he's also going to be like, hey, I'm going to wipe you out as a king yourself. That you yourself will be killed and, and, and die. What's the reason? Verse 14 says, for you are contemptible. Okay. Strong language of God saying he totally despises them. So I want to look at more of like what makes this Syrian and what makes the king so despised by God, okay? To put this in context, I just want to uh, look at even what the Bible gives actually indication. I'm going to look at what the Bible gives a window of why perhaps God would find the Assyrian king in such contempt. And I also want to look outside the Bible from ancient Near East source of the Assyrian records themselves of why is it that little window, why God finds them so contemptible. Um, here it just says it. I think the re, uh, author is assuming because back then they understood more the Syrians, what was going on. It was almost a given that they already know the reason. But God just says he's contemptible and it's almost like the people would know. But for us, just for a little bit window, just so because we're far removed, 2,700 years removed from those contexts, we need some little insight from Scripture. Turn with me real quick to 2 Kings 18. I think this reveals why is it God find them the king of Assyria so contemptible that he would say, I'm going to remove your dynasty, I'm going to destroy your idols, and I'm going to kill you myself. Why is that? Turn with me to 2 Kings 18, verse 28. I'm looking at verse 28 for context first before we look at the actual passage that I want to make a point with. If you're with me in 2 Kings 18, let me slowly turn there. Second Kings 18, this is what it says. Uh, Second Kings 18, uh, verses 28, this is what it says. Because of you, uh, whoops, wrong one, that was 19. Second Kings chapter 18, verse 28, this is what it says. Then Rabashka stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the words of the great king. The king of Assyria. And by the way, what the context was going on here is this is someone that was relaying, um, you know, a, a Judean himself was relaying a message. There's some political issues with the king of Assyria. He's invaded in verses 10 uh, and verses 11, where under the reign of Hezekiah, there's all these problems. He invaded, taking some people. And now um, there's a message that this Judean is going to say, I'm going to let you know the message of the king of Assyria himself, okay? So that's the context of verse 18. But I want to zoom in specifically to what the king says. 
what the Assyrian king says in verses 33 and 35, okay? Um, verses 33, Rebecca, could you read for us? Uh, verse 33. Again, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 33. You can read from my Bible, my lady. Verse 33. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered the, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Okay, and in verse 35. Where, where are the gods of... Hamath and Arpad. Where are the gods of Seth? Oh, oh, verse 35, sorry. You just read the verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my land? <coughs> Sit down, okay? Thank you for reading that. So, verses 33 to 35, the king is basically dissing God. He's actually blasphemed God, okay? He's actually mocking God. And this was understood that way because if you look in verses, oh uh, man, let's see. Uh, the next chapter, verses 4, um, you know, Hezekiah is crying out to God. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabakasha, the, you know, the guy that just said this word, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. Some of your version will say mock or blaspheme, Okay. And what is the blasphemy? Blasphemy is what? Is the king of Assyria says, Hey, you know what? Surrender to me. I invaded all these places. Verse 34, the actual part that my daughter read. is saying, look at all these other gods and other lands. Did their gods help them when I invade? No. So you should might as well give up to your God is not going to be able to help uh, in protecting them from me. Now, this is utter blasphemy, right? So why God finds a contempt is this guy who's a mere mortal who... Who, you know, God existed even before him, and God who exists even after him, his life. He's saying he's more powerful than God. That's straight blasphemy. Okay? That's straight blasphemy. So, this is why God holds the king in utter contempt. Okay? Utter contempt. And then, just a little bit of window insight. This is from ancient Near East um, literature. Okay? Um, this is uh, from the royal inscription of a one of their king named Ashra Hadan. Okay? Ashrahadan. This is the titles. This is the title. What Ashrahadan? He gives a title for himself. Just listen to this. And I think if you listen to this, you might say, "Man, this sounds like the Bible. This sounds like the Bible." But this is a title that you give to what? To God. Okay. You give to God. This is what he calls himself. His title. He calls himself Ashadan, the Great King, Mighty King, King of the World. Man, that's pretty big to say you're the king of the world, right? King of Assyria, governor of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world. Man, this guy really think he rules the whole world, right? True shepherd, okay? Um, favorite of the great gods, whom from his childhood, the god Ashur, Samas, Bel, and Nabu, Ishtar, of Nineveh, and Ishtar of Arbila, named for the kingship of Assyria. Could you imagine you have to address a king and says, hey, who are you? And you say, all oh, these super long titles, right? I know at church we were just making a joke about how some occupation, some people like to put letters after their names, right? They like to write, you know, I don't know, um, Jim Lee, Farm D, LJD, and Pulse, and all those things, right? MDF, THM, and all, whatever else, MAR, MA, and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that, necessarily, unless you're doing it for pride. But could you imagine a title like that you're saying? Like, in essence, you're the king of kings. You rule the whole four corners of the world. That God loves you the most. All these gods, the great Babylonian gods, the Ishtar. Now you're claiming as your own. As, as All of them says you're the most favored one of all the people. That's pretty arrogant. And then to say that you're even above all these other gods. Do you think God has right reason to find them contemptible? Yeah. He's straying a lot of people's relations with God. He's shaking people's up with their walk with God. Okay? And is what Kike said is right, is what even like the um, Caesar like to call themselves. In fact, some of the titles of Jesus, that's what made the Roman Empire so freaked out. When they said you're the son of God, they're like, oh, is he saying there's a political dimension? He, you're saying he's greater than Caesar or equal or greater? So there is this challenge. There is a polemical, I think there is a political theology in the Bible. But I think, unfortunately, even when you read a lot of political theology today, I think a lot of them are very polite. And there's a place to be polite. But I think they're missing a lot of edges. There's a polemical theology uh, to that. Okay, But that's another sermon, another time. Maybe we'll do a series on that one day. Okay, uh, but probably controversial. But we see here um, with this is that God is judging them because the king is he's making himself equal or greater 
than God. And I think there's an application for us too. We need to really watch our pride. We need to be very careful of our success. With all the success that you have, and by the way, um, to put this in perspective, um, I know some of us are in different crossroads in life, but you guys are very bright. You guys realize in this group, in this Bible study, you guys are really, in some ways, pretty bright. And I know, again, I'm not downplaying that there's challenges. Some of us are in crossroads and various things. But most of us here will probably not end up starving, barely making minimum wage, okay? Um, you guys, actually, I think most of you guys are way far brighter than I am, okay? Um, in terms of what I talk to you guys about, James, you know, like I know you're very smart politically and all these things, right? Some of you guys know the scriptures very deeply. Some of you guys in your occupation, some of you guys says, show me your thesis. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, Chris, right? Or Hui with PharmD and Leanne to go to medical school. You know, Kike, uh, I would never, ever want to battle you with math, Okay. Um, with all these things, you know, and Eric, you know, so many things that I'm always amazed what you know, and I think most of us in our church uh, with that, you know, so I'm all basically saying you guys are very bright, but let it be that with all our success, may it be that we love God more, that God has given us his wisdom, okay, let it be that it causes us more to be humble, that God has given us a privilege to live in God's green earth, and of all the places of God's green earth, we want the lotto, we want it to be in a place that, that has oper- educational infrastructure for us to pursue depths of knowledge, right? Let it be that we are more humbled with this because no one gets arrogant like the Assyrian king out of nowhere. It takes a lot of arrogance. It takes a lot of times we think we trust in our own pride and our own self-sufficiency also as well, okay? So trust in God and also realize it ought to be that cultivate constantly as an application, a culture within yourself and others of humility and loving God. And again, these are all judgment of God. And we're going to see next week that all of this, we also see comfort. But for now, of all this, if we know that God judges sin, we need to be right with God. How? God gives us this good news by trusting in Jesus Christ who died and saved us from our sins. Okay? Let me stop at this point.